This is Two Girls, One Mike, the show that talks about the holes and plot holes of your favorite porn. Welcome to Two Girls, One Mike, the podcast that has just as many downloads as Alyssa Milano's. I'm your co-host, Alice Vaughn, and with me, I have my gorgeous co-host, as always, Yvette Don Tremont, a.k.a. The Cybabe, a.k.a. How are you doing today? I'm doing okay. I'm thrilled to bits that we probably have as many downloads as Alyssa Milano because, man, the audacity. Did you see that? Did you, our audience out there, see that? I could understand wanting to have a lot of uh, downloads and followers, but she tweeted in a, you know, in an understandable moment of rage, as we all have sometimes. This is a slight paraphrase. What is wrong with this world that I only have as a third as many followers as Joe Rogan on his podcast? And it's like, lady, you think you have a third as many fo- listeners as Joe Rogan? You think you have that many? Who told you these numbers incorrectly? If you had a third as many followers on your podcast, that nobody is fucking heard of. You would be doing really well. And it was just, it's like a lot of people have a lot of opinions on Joe Rogan. I've been on his show. I have positive and negative opinions on him. I have complicated opinions on him and how he uses his platform. The way she expressed that was just like, man, the stunning audacity that you think you're just entitled to all of these followers by showing up and having your opinion be what it is. Oh, girl, not a good look at all. Now, showing up and having an opinion, though, definitely uh, helps make change happen. And so first off, Yvette, before we introduce our guest, we have an announcement. We do have an announcement. This is our 100th episode. Wow. We've been doing this for near, goddamn nearly two years now. Right? And we haven't killed each other or fucked. We got close to both. Yeah, right? I'm I'm amazed that neither has happened, truly. <laughs> I think we've come to a close and deep place in our relationship. Our will they, won't they is still strong. We finally understand what the fuck we're doing here. Look, all I'm saying is generally most businesses for the first three to five years operate at a loss. The first three to five years, we're we're alive. We're we're here. I think we're operating at a at a even now we're not we're not at a loss we're not at a gain we're about breaking even give or take now i was gonna say you run the books you're probably like yvette you have no idea (laughs) so what i'm saying is we just need a few more patreons uh we need a few more listeners and we're gonna be melissa alano on the chart so melissa alano Alyssa Milano. you know melissa alano here's the thing that's what her followers think her name is too so what's the difference well we're definitely beating melissa alano yeah we're totally on top of her on the charts by the end of recording this, if one of us hasn't like made a, a, a parody account called Melissa Alano that just parodies uh, everything she does. And like, here's the thing. I'm politically, we're on the same team. And I just find her kind of insufferable, which makes me sad because I hate it when I find people who I probably vote the exact same way as insufferable. It's just, come on, man. Like, you've been rich and famous since you were nine. Don't tell, like, stop whining to me about your life. So what we're saying is uh, we are the boss when it comes to parody account. Melissa Alano, we're coming for you. (laughs) But aside from the famous Melissa Alano, we have on the show today, Cindy Gallup. Cindy, the first time I heard about you, I mean, when I heard your tagline, I I think you sold me. You know, your tagline is, I like to blow shit up. I'm the Michael Bay of business. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thrilled to be here. So tell our listeners, why are you the Michael Bay of business? And why is Michael Bay definitely not the Michael Bay of business? (laughs) I mean, obviously that line is um, humorous and it started off off as a bit of a joke. You know, I'm the founder and CEO of Make Love Not Porn. But alongside that, I support myself as a business consultant and a public speaker. 
I consult very selectively only with clients and brands who want to change the game in their particular sector. So you come to me for radical, innovative, groundbreaking, transformative. I don't do status quo. And so I was in a meeting with some potential clients many years ago, and I summed all of that up in the meeting in a throwaway fashion as, I like to blow shit up. I am the Michael Bay of business. And everybody laughed. And I came out of the meeting, I thought, actually, that's a really good way to sum up what I do. And it is actually very deliberate because that line is not a bit of whimsy or a bit of creativity, a bit of fun. It's about my particular philosophy of always be your own filter. Because when I characterize what I do in that way, it attracts to me the people who want what I do and it repels the ones who don't. And I sure as hell want to repel the ones who don't because they're a waste of time, effort and money. Oh, you don't go out and try to woo the people that are like, ah, you're like, they're just, they're going to come to me. Yeah. No. And so when they hear, you know, she likes to blow shit up, she's the Michael Bear business. I mean, either you go, bloody hell, give me some of that. Or you go, you know, and run a mile. And that's great. Keep running. What's fascinating for me is that you've conquered the business world. You founded the Asian Pacific as well as the United States branches of BBH, one of the largest advertising companies in the world. And then afterwards said, yeah, I'm uh, just going to go and do my own thing now. And you've just been a powerhouse ever since. I mean, you also have, you know, and I saw a portion of it, but one of the most talked about TED Talks, you know, from back in 09. Let's actually talk about that. How did you transition from the business world to make love, not porn? Because it's fascinating. Sure. So everything in my life and career has happened by accident. I've never consciously, intentionally planned anything. Make love, not porn was a total accident. Much like this podcast. So we can relate. There you go. All the best things are. But, you know, the reason I left the corporate world was Back in 2005, I turned 45 and I had my very own personal midlife crisis in the sense that I'd always thought of 45 as kind of a midlife point. Obviously, by the way, in the happy assumption, one lives to be 90, fingers crossed. But in a couple of years running up to it, I'd always thought on one's 45th birthday is the moment when you should pause, take stock, reflect and review, where have I been, where am I going? So on February 1, 2005, I duly did that. And that was the point at which I went, oh my God, I've just worked 16 years for the same advertising agency. Wonderful agency, love them to death, cannot say enough nice things about BBH, that they were phenomenal. But I went, wow, maybe it's time to do something different. And then the problem was I hadn't the faintest idea what. So vast amounts of thought and angsting ensued. And eventually I went... If I want to review every possible option open to me for what is effectively the second half of my life, maybe the best thing to do is to put myself in the market very publicly and go, okay, guys, here I am. What do you got? And see what comes. So I took a massive leap into the unknown. I resigned as chairman of BBH New York in the summer of 2005 without a job to go to. And honestly, it was the best thing that I ever did in my life. Because I am now evangelical about working for yourself. You know, too many people make the mistake of thinking that a job is the safe option. It's not. Because in a job, you are at the complete mercy of management changes industry downturns, marketplace dynamics. I always say, whose hands would you rather place your future in? Those of a large corporate entity 
who at the end of the day doesn't give a shit about you, or somebody who will always have your best interests at heart, i.e. you. It's so true. You're talking to two people who work for ourselves. So my, in my case, my only employee is a slacker and my boss is a workaholic cunt. So, you know, same thing as when I had a job. A job I wouldn't say is a safe option. I would, if anything, categorize it as an easy option. And I say that because once you've worked for yourself and then you go to work, you know, clock in a nine to five for someone else. Oh, my God. Just a weight off your shoulders of things you don't have to think about. It's almost mindless because it's just go in, do the shit and go home. You're just there's a list and you're done. Well, you know, that depends whether if that's what you want, you're fortunate enough to have that because, I was speaking at the, obviously this year, virtual 3% conference at the start of this week. And on Monday evening, I did a speaker meetup sponsored by Google. So it was a Google Hangout. And we had a ton of people and they asked me questions in the chat and I answered them. There were a number of questions about people who are in jobs in very frustrating environments. The point I made to them was when you are fighting that bigger battle every day to get your voice heard, to be appreciated, honestly, just get the fuck out. It's not worth it. Uh, The point I made was my grandmother on the English side of the family was a wonderful woman, big influence in my childhood, and she was very interested in Buddhism. I always remember this Buddhist saying that she would come out with regularly in my childhood. The fool says, evil cannot touch me, but drop by drop the pitcher fills. And that is what happens when you are in a workplace where you think, you know, it's sexist, it's racist, but it's a paycheck. And the point is, every day in tiny ways, your soul is being destroyed. And you may not think that that is impacting you, but it absolutely is. Get the fuck out. Makes sense. I mean, there's a lot of people that I feel that if anything, this pandemic has allowed them to explore new opportunities and even, you know, start figuring things out for themselves. That said, also, it's nice to have a job during the pandemic or income coming in somehow. Uh, yeah, I'm fortunate the way my job works out. I'm, I'm able to keep drawing income. But there are types of jobs that like, what would your advice be to someone who has this type of job that they're almost automatically going to be looking to be employed by someone in order to do what they're trained into? Like most scientists don't have either the capital or the resources to just start up a lab and do or, or even the experience to start up a lab and start doing their research day one out of school. Absolutely. I mean, I would say the same thing that I've been saying for decades to young people who want to go into advertising. You know, years ago, I was giving a talk at Can Lions Advertising Festival. And in the Q&A session, a young woman said to me, Cindy, what is the single piece of advice that you would give a young person who wants to get into advertising today? And I went, that's very easy. Don't. And then I said, let me explain what I mean by that. Don't go into advertising to go into advertising. Go into advertising to make what you want to happen, happen. So absolutely get a job at any agency. And honestly, it doesn't matter which one, get a foothold. And then take a long, hard look around you and identify what you think is missing from this industry that should be there. What you would love to have in the industry that nobody appears to have done anything about what you think you could uniquely bring to the table that nobody else is, and then start that. Whether you propose that to your current employer as a project within your workplace, or whether you jump ship and do it yourself, 
that is actually the quickest path to wealth creation because do that in the advertising industry and a few years later, holding companies will buy it from you for a shit ton of money. So equally, as a young scientist, absolutely get a job wherever you can, but use your freshness and objectivity of perspective to identify what the industry is missing because you can then leverage that to your advantage. Speaking of things that are missing in an industry, so you felt as if in porn, there wasn't enough real sex, so which is... No, no, I did not, no? no. Okay, I'm wrong. I'm totally wrong. Okay, correct me. <laughs> sure. So as I said, Make Love Not Porn was a complete and total accident. So I date younger men. They tend to be men in their 20s. And 12 or 13 years ago now, I began realizing through dating younger men that I was encountering an issue that would never have crossed my mind if I had not encountered it very intimately and personally. I realized I was experiencing what happens when two things converge. And I stress the dual convergence because most people think it's only one thing. I realized I was experiencing what happens when today's total freedom of access to hardcore porn online meets our society's equally total reluctance to talk openly and honestly about sex. When those two things converge, porn becomes sex education by default in not a good way. So I found myself encountering a number of sexual behavioral memes in bed. I went, whoa, I know where that behavior is coming from. I thought, gosh, if I'm experiencing this, other people must be as well. I didn't know Mm -hmm. that because 12, 13 years ago, nobody was talking about this. Nobody was writing about it. This was me in complete isolation as a naturally action-oriented person going, I want to do something about this. So 11 years ago, I put up on No Money, a tiny clunky website at makelovenotporn.com, that its original iteration was just words. The construct was porn world versus real world. Here's what happens in the porn world. Here's what really happens in the real world. Launched at TED, where, as you've seen, I became the only TED speaker to say the words, come on my face on the TED stage, six times in succession. We applaud this. Thank you. You're a hero. The talk went viral as a result. I'm shocked no one else has said it. I know, amazing. It doesn't relate to anyone else's talk. Um, Sadly not. I mean, at least Monica Lewinsky could have said it. Yep, but she gave a brilliant talk without saying it. So I know, I know, I know, bullying. She was fantastic. We know Dr. Jen Gunter's going to say it next time she gives a TED talk. With any luck. Anyway, so, so the talk went viral and drove this extraordinary global response to my tiny website that I had never anticipated. And I realized I'd uncovered a huge global social issue. Thousands of people wrote to me from every country in the world, young and old, male and female, straight and gay, pouring their hearts out. And so I felt I had a personal responsibility now to take Make Love Not Porn forwards in a way that would make it much more far-reaching, helpful, and effective. But I also saw an opportunity to do what I believe in very strongly, which is that the future of business is doing good and making money simultaneously. I saw the opportunity for a big business solution to this huge untapped global need. And I use the word big advisedly because even then, 11 years ago at concept stage, I knew if I wanted to counter the global impact of porn as default sex ed, I would have to come up with something that at least had the potential one day to be just as mass, just as mainstream, and just as all-pervasive in our society as porn currently is. So setting myself a very big goal right from the get-go. And so what I decided to do was... 
I always emphasize make love not porn is not anti-porn because the issue isn't porn. I'm glad. Yay. The issue is that we don't talk about sex in the real world. Thank you. you If we did, amongst a whole host of other benefits, people would then be able to bring a real world mindset when they view what is simply produced performative entertainment. And so our tagline at Make Love Not Porn is pro-sex, pro-porn, pro-knowing the difference. And our mission is one thing only, which is to help make it easier for every single person in the world to talk openly and honestly about sex. And to do that in two areas, A, in the public domain, and by that I mean parents to children, teachers to schools, everyone to everyone, but B, and even more crucially, to talk about sex openly and honestly privately in your intimate relationships. And the reason that's so key is because we don't talk about sex, it is an area of rampant insecurity for every single one of us. We all get vulnerable when we get naked. Sexual ego is very fragile. People therefore find it bizarrely difficult to talk about sex with the people they're actually having it with while they're actually having it. Because in that situation, you're terrified that if you say anything at all about what's going on, if you comment on the action in any way at all, you will potentially hurt the other person's feelings, put them off you, derail the encounter, potentially derail the entire relationship. But at the same time, you want to please your partner. You want to make them happy. Everybody wants to be good in bed. Nobody knows exactly what that means. And so you will seize your (laughs) cues on how to do that from anywhere you can. And if the only cues you've ever seen are in porn, because your parents didn't talk to you about sex, because your school didn't teach you, because your friends aren't honest, those are the cues you're going to take to not very good effect. So given this mission of talk about it, I decided to take every dynamic in social media and apply them to this one area no other social network or platform will go in order to socialize sex and to make real world sex and talking about it socially acceptable and therefore ultimately just as socially shareable as anything else we share on Facebook, Tumblr, Twitter, Instagram. So eight years ago, my tiny team and I launched MakeLoveNotPorn.tv, which is an entirely user-generated, crowdsourced video sharing platform that celebrates real world sex. I'm just falling in love with you more every sentence you speak. You're just, it's, <laughs> I, I, it's, I dig the mission of this so much. Thank you. Fantastic. So anybody from anywhere in the world can submit to us videos of themselves having real world sex, but we're very clear what we mean by this. We are not porn. We are not amateur. We are building a whole new category on the internet that has never before existed, social sex. So our competition isn't porn, it's Facebook and YouTube, or rather it would be if Facebook and YouTube allowed you to socially, sexually self-express, which they don't. Oh, they definitely don't. No. My face actually, uh, Cindy, you're going to get a kick out of this. So I I make and manufacture ball gag face masks. So face masks. These are amazing. Oh, wow. Fantastic. I love, I love. I keep telling her if she puts a filter in it, I'll take one. Brilliant. I'm working on it, but I'll mail you one. My point is uh, just the ball gag face mask Mm. actually has, it's banned from Facebook, the photo of me wearing it completely just because it goes against their sexual standards. It's ludicrous. It's ludicrous. I had a meme taken down with all it was, was a picture I forget what the caption even was, but what was sexual about it was you could see a woman's midriff and her pants were unbuttoned and you could see the top of her belly button and a hand was slightly below the top of her underwear. 
that was too sexual for Facebook. This is exactly why I'm doing what I'm doing. Because social sex videos on Make Love Not Porn are not about performing for the camera. They are simply about doing what you already do on every other social platform. Capture what goes on in the real world as it happens spontaneously in all its funny, messy, glorious, comical, awkward, hysterical, beautiful humanness. We curate to make sure of that. I designed Make love not porn around human curation very important our curators watch every single video submitted from beginning to end we do not publish it unless it's real and we have a revenue sharing business model our members pay to subscribe rent and stream social sex videos half the income goes to our contributors who we call our make love not porn stars i love it and i want to just drill into what i mean by social sex because porn is purely and simply masturbation material that's its role Okay. We are not just that. We are that too, by the way, very happy to be that. But we are many more socially beneficial things on top of that. So for example, social sex is enormously reassuring because we celebrate real world everything, real world bodies, real world hair, real world penis size, real world breast size. Unbleached asshole. Oh, yep. No, absolutely. Real world queefs. Oh, yep. You can talk body positivity all you like. Oh my God, born like. with vagina queefs. I'm there. You can preach self-love till you're blue in the face. Nothing makes people feel great about their own body. Like watching people who are nobody's idea of aspirational body types getting turned on by each other desiring each other, having a bloody amazing time in bed. Our mantra is everybody is beautiful when they're having real world sex, and they really are. And then to your point, social sex is also reassuring because we celebrate the accidents, the awkwardness, the messiness. If you only learn about sex from porn, porn teaches you that sex is a performance. Nothing must go wrong. Oh my God, it did. How excruciating embarrassing. I can't talk about this whatever. Whereas we go, if you can't laugh at yourselves in bed, when can you? And right. so in our videos, ridiculous things happen because this is the real world. If you can't laugh in bed. Yeah. Look, I know you talked about unbleached assholes, Yvette, but find me one porn star, one porn star with hair on her asshole. We all have hair in the ass crack. We do. No one talks we about do. it. Men, we all have it. Mm. If you're not familiar with it, we're shaving it for you. Or you just haven't looked that close when you've been at, looking at an asshole. You've been flying blind. But it gets caught there. So the overarching goal of all of this is, so when I say to people that make love not porn exists just to make it easier to talk about sex, because we don't do that currently, people don't get how massively, profoundly society transformative that would be. And, and this is what I mean. I designed make love not porn around my own beliefs and philosophies, one of which is that everything in life starts with you and your values. So I regularly ask people this question, what are your sexual values? And nobody can ever answer me because we're not taught to think like that. Our parents bring us up to have good manners, work ethic, sense of responsibility, accountability. And to think that sex is dirty. Exactly. Nobody ever brings us up to behave well in bed. But they should, because in bed, values like empathy, sensitivity, mm. generosity, kindness, honesty, respect are as important as those values are in every other area of our lives where we're actively taught to exercise them. So this is my vision for the world when Make Love Not Porn achieves its mission at scale. Parents will bring their children up openly to have 
good sexual values and good sexual behavior, the same way they currently bring them up to have good values and behavior in every other area of life, we will therefore cease to bring up rapists. Because the only way that you end rape culture, and by the way, this really is the only way, is by inculcating in society and openly talked about, promoted, operated, and very importantly, aspired to gold standard of what constitutes good sexual values and behavior. When we do that, we also end Me Too. We end sexual harassment, abuse, violence, all areas where the perpetrators currently rely on the fact that we do not talk about sex to ensure victims never speak up, never go to authorities, never tell anybody. When we end that, we massively empower women and girls worldwide. When we do that, we create a far happier world for everybody, including men. And when we do that, we are one step closer to world peace. I talk about Make Love Not Porn as my attempt to bring about world peace, and I'm not joking. Ooh, you gave me goosebumps. I'm just, just give that speech and then announce your run for president. I like it. <laughs> I never considered being a Miss America, but I, you know, I'm going to steal the speech, how we're going to utilize the Make Love Not Porn platform to get to world peace. Because every contestant says, I want world peace. No one has an answer mm. how we're going to do that. We're going to do that with Make Love mm, Not absolutely. Porn. We're going to do that with sex ed, comprehensive sex ed. And the point about that, by the way, Yvette, is so Make Love Not Porn cannot be more relevant in the era of Me Too, because right now, quite rightly, everybody is talking about consent. Everybody is writing about consent. There are lots of thoughtful, nuanced, insightful think pieces out there about consent. Here's the problem. Nobody knows what consent actually looks like in bed. The only way you educate people as to what is great consensual communicative sex, good sexual values and behavior, is by watching people actually having that kind of sex. And Make Love Not Porn is the only place on the internet you can do that. We are literally education through demonstration. Yeah, the thing is, when it comes to normal pornography, the scripted kind we're talking about, they discuss consent for anywhere from, you know, half an hour to an hour and a half before they start shooting the scene of, hey, what do you like? You know, how hard do you like it? Do you like it light? Are there things that are completely off limits for oh, you? Yeah, are, no, it, um, no, absolutely. But we never get to see that on screen. Yep, yeah. We never see if they have to cut because somebody accidentally crosses the limit. No, and by the way, many things are laid at porn store that should be laid at societies. It is not porn's job to be sex education. Yeah. It's society's job to educate. And that is why I've been saying for 11 years, the issue isn't porn. The issue is that we don't talk about sex in the real world. Thank you. Thank you. It's just like I always tell people, guys, porn is like Deadpool. Dash cams are, it's like real sex. You know, it's two totally different things. It's not even close. No. And by the way, that is why we have a very unique category on Make Love Not Porn, which I conceived of pre-launch, wanted in place at launch, and my friends uh, helped me. Make Love Not Porn is the only place on the internet where porn stars share videos of the sex they have offset in the real world. Stop! Because porn stars have real world sex too. Before you go any further, how much is it to subscribe per month? It starts at $10 a month. Get in there. Oh, I'm going to go check this out. If, if only you. just for yeah. like a month or two, because I want to go like see and yeah. Because obviously porn stars have real world sex too, oh, but yeah. it's completely different what they perform professionally. And so my gay, straight, lesbian, trans porn star friends share on Make Love Not Porn videos of the sex they have in their real world relationships with their real world partners. And in some of those, they talk about how different this is from the kind of sex they perform on set. Nice. 
That is amazing. I think people see porn star sex and they think I should be aspiring to have this sex. I'm not doing the sex right if I can't Mm. jackhammer for the next half hour. And that's obviously the only way that I will orgasm and the only way the woman will orgasm. No. That is not a call out to Johnny Jackhammer. Keep doing your thing. We speak not of Johnny Jackhammer. And that's why what I say is, you know, if porn is the Hollywood blockbuster movie, Make Love Not Porn is the real world documentary. Thank you. We are utterly unique. We are what has always been missing, which is we are the only real world, you know, we're not, as I said, we don't compete with porn. We are a complement and a counterpoint to porn. We are the window onto the real world because the reason amateur is the biggest growth sector in porn has nothing to do with porn. It has everything to do with the fact that everybody wants to know what everyone else is really doing in bed and nobody does until now (laughs) when Make Love Porn is finally showing them. Yeah, actually, that makes a lot of sense. Why amateur was such a hot category when it launched and continues to this Mm. day to be one of the hottest categories. It came out around the time that like gonzo porn really started taking off. And gonzo porn is like the most fake feeling of it's just, you know, Mm. like I said earlier, jackhammer, jackhammer, jackhammer. And like all of a sudden people were like, I want something that's not uh, completely waxed, completely Botox. I just want something that feels a little more natural. Mm. But but the difficulty is, though, 99.5. 9% of all porn on the internet billed as amateur isn't. It's made by professional production companies pretending to be amateur because it's what people want. You know, I have to say all the time, they, yeah. those dorm rooms don't exist, you know. Yeah, the pro amateurs, basically. And even the genuine amateurs, because of the ubiquity of porn, they replicate the porn stars because they think that's what people yeah. want to see. Whereas at Make Love Not Porn, we go to enormous lengths to, you know, uh, I mean, we have all sorts of tips and tricks of filming because we want you to forget the cameras there. Turn on your webcam, whatever, put your phone up, and, and we want you to capture the way you have sex in the real world. And, and all of our videos are this wonderfully privileged, intimate glimpse into real people's sex lives, where they're having sex the way they do in everyday life. And, you know, when I said earlier, ridiculous things happen that you will never, ever see in porn or in amateur, because this is the real world. So with one couple, you know, um, it's lovely, actually, that they're having sex, you know, their cat jumps up on the bed, you know, it, it kind ah. of like strolls around, you know, looks at them. They're oblivious to all of this, by the way. You know, <laughs> then it kind of like, you know, crouches down the pillow, you know, stares at them. It's, and, and it's an adorable moment. Another couple, um, they're having sex. Her phone rings. For some bizarre reason, she answers it. It's her, <laughs> um, it's her mother. I want the banging to keep going during this. The worst part is I have been that woman. Yeah, everything stops. You know, husband leaves the room, chat, 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 puts it out. Okay, oi, back in here. You know, and then they resume. <laughs> because this yeah, is the real world. This is the real world, you know? Thank you. That's what happens. And that's also what happens when you have overprotective parents too. So you, you have to deal with yep. them. Otherwise, they're going to call 20 more times. So take it, you deal with it, then you get back exactly. to banging. So there's a little fascination about this because... Very soon after we launched, a woman wrote to us and she said, oh my God, I love this. I love making love, I love your videos. Then she said, this is probably going to sound really weird, but you know, one of the things I really love is I love seeing the insides of other people's houses. And, and, and I wrote back to her, it's not weird, it's not weird at all because I love that too. Because again, this is real world sex. I'll make love yeah. porn are having sex, you know, 
all over the place, you know, on the kitchen floor, in the bathtub, on vacation. One couple, the husband built a new garden shed in their garden and to celebrate him finishing it, they had sex on the roof of the shed and they fit- videoed it and made love not porn. And it. so they had to test how sturdy it was. Yep. Fair. And and so there is this voyeuristic fascination that is beyond sex voyeurism. It is other people's lives voyeurism. And it's just it adds a whole new dimension, you know? Oh my god. The other thing is when it comes to pornography, it's generally shot in some of the same places over and over. So I can't tell you how many times I've seen the same bathroom, the same kitchen, and I know whose house it is. And the worst part is, like, I used to watch it pre-knowing those people and say, yeah, how much did they pay for that grout? You know, but nowadays... Now we know it's the same Airbnb in the valley every time. Yeah, but now... I know there's other options. I could look at other people's houses. Thank you, Cindy. Yep, you've just reminded me of something. So the sets that you get bored with, the valley houses, are a function of laws. Yeah. It's very interesting. The reason so much porn looks so similar, is set in places so similar, is because the rules governing the production of adult content in California allowed the porn industry to flourish there. I would have loved to have seen what would have happened if New York was the center of the porn industry. Oh, you would have so many more neighbors uh, in the background. You would have a very different culture of porn. That's true. All right, we're starting it. Yvette, it's just me. I'm starting the porn industry in New York. I don't know how, but I am. I want to know what porn's going to look like when it's filmed in your place. There's going to be like a wall of binders in the back instead of walls of like generic art from Ikea. I'll switch it out from time to time. But the problem was, is was, uh, and I remember when we spoke to Joanna Angel about this, the problem about uh, filming porn in New York versus LA where she eventually moved out to is that you're kind of beholden to the weather first off. I mean, at least six months to eight months out of the year, it's cold or just an obscene temperature you can't control. And the second is really the noise. I mean, it's not like LA where you have space versus New Jersey even. Everyone's on top of each other in New York and that's a problem. I mean, I, I live only a mile outside of downtown LA and it feels like we're in the suburbs. So, and we're still technically like right in the middle of things. So LA is fairly spread out for such a populated area. So that and like a bad day for the weather here is, oh no, it's in the 70s and a little cloudy. And I guess if you think about it, the porn that's shot in the on the West Coast versus if it's shot in the East Coast, because you're going to have different background noise, it's going to be a lot quieter. So you can hear the moans, the screams, the silence. I think it's more interesting to think about the fact that um, New York is a real multicultural melting pot. I agree. I mean, A, New York should completely rethink its laws regarding the production of adult content because what an economic blockbuster to make your city the new center of the adult industry. Cindy, we don't even have pot here. I mean, you're being very progressive. And secondly, I, I am talking about the potential cultural innovation of much more creative approaches to porn. I mean, so I I get frustrated when people use the word porn like it's all one big homogenous mass. That's like using the word literature to say it's all the same thing. The landscape of porn is as rich and infinitely varied as the landscape of literature. There are as many genres and subgenres. The very unfortunate thing is, we all watch porn, we don't talk about it. Porn therefore exists in this parallel universe, this shadowy other world. Porn therefore lacks 
a number of the tools that we use in every other part of our lives to improve them. So, for example, porn lacks curation and navigation. Or rather, it lacks socially acceptable curation and navigation because there are sites that curate porn, but they're porn sites. There is no Yelp of porn. And there's no Yelp of porn. Wait, there's, this is a business idea. Hold on. I'm writing it down. Um, it's a billion dollar business idea. Uh, but the reason it doesn't exist so far, the reason there's no Yelp of porn is because right now it's really okay to come into the office on a Monday morning, stand by the water cooler and go, I'm really bored with all the restaurants I've been here at. Who knows any restaurant? It's not okay to come into the office, stand by the water cooler and go, I'm really bored with all the porn I've been watching. Who knows some new porn? And that's a problem because the landscape of porn needs navigation, especially for young people. And by the way, the Yelp of porn is a billion-dollar business idea. I would totally do it. I won't work in my own billion-dollar business idea. But the point being that I have female queer pornographer friends who are making brilliant, innovative, disruptive, creative porn. They are not getting the traffic, the numbers, and the revenue they deserve because nobody can find them. Which websites should we start sending people to if we can ask for recommendations? Absolutely. Um, the amazing um, Shine Louise Houston and um, Pink and White Productions, Pink Label TV, you know, Crash Pad series. My friend um, Jennifer Lyon Bell, who is um, based in Amsterdam, Blue Artichoke Films. She makes fantastic porn. Aorta Films here in New York, actually, fantastic queer porn studio. The point being, there's a ton of really amazing stuff happening, but not enough people know about it and no one can find it because everyone goes, <gasps> porn. And so nobody's building the Yelp of porn are ways to help people find exactly the porn they love. Yet, after this episode, we might have a few people changing that. What you don't know is Alice is already well, like under the table with one hand, buying the domain for yelpofporn.com. Please do start that. And, and also, so here are the four micro-actions. I tell every woman she can undertake to transform the porn industry. Every one of us can transform the porn industry. It's really easy. So my correction number one is I say to every woman, say publicly you enjoy watching porn. Because we don't. Currently, there's a double standard. Alice and I are on yep. it. Yep. No, 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 you must. Because at the moment, there's a double standard. Men can go porn, you know. Um, but, you know, nice girls don't do that. So it's very important that every woman says publicly as often as possible she enjoys watching porn. Because it's only when we do that that the porn industry goes, wow, there is a huge market opportunity there. There is money to be made there. Must do something about that. They don't know until we tell them there is. It's so true. Micro-action number yeah. two. I say to every woman, recommend the shit out of the porn you love to your girlfriends. Because there is no Yelp of porn, so make not porn, as you've heard, is not porn. Nevertheless, we regularly end up on those lists that every women's media brand curates of 10 porn sites women will love. You know, Glamour, um, Glamour last year put out a list of, here are 15 porn sites we guarantee you'll love. We were number one. Every time we are on one of those lists, they send a shit ton of traffic to us. That's because women are desperate for help finding the kind of porn they really enjoy. Okay, so micro-action number two, recommend the shit out of the porn you love to your girlfriends so that the word spreads about all these indie porn makers who otherwise don't get the traffic and the, and the revenue. Micro-action number three, and this is for straight women, what I say is sit your male partner down and, sh and make him watch the porn that you enjoy. Because um, I have a real issue with the terms feminist porn and porn for women. And by the way, I have plenty of friends who call themselves feminists porn makers. You know, they say they make porn for women. The reason I have an issue with those terms is because the moment you characterize porn as feminist porn or for women, men go, not for me. 
That marginalizes that porn, and men have no idea how hot, arousing, innovative, and creative they would find porn made for women by women. So straight women, micro-action number three, sit your male partner down, make him watch the porn that you love. And micro-action number four is create the porn you want to see in the world. Be the change. Be the change. Yeah. What sells in any industry is what has always sold, individual creative vision. There isn't enough of it at the moment. And it's been amazing to me. I said to you earlier, I support myself through consultancy and and public speaking. The number of business environments I've been in, corporate environments, where because I am the founder of Make Love Not Porn, both women and men come up to me and go, you know, Cindy, I always wanted to start a porn production company. There are so many people out there who wanted to start making porn for various reasons. I mean, one woman came up to me and told me that when I was speaking at a tech conference in Dublin and she wanted to start making porn, but the the Irish laws, as you can imagine, Catholic country, I mean, Mm -hmm. totally constricting, you know, no can do. Um, Another time a man came and told me that he wanted to start a porn production company, but he ran up against what I battle every day, the no adult content clause. It's extraordinarily difficult to, to, you know, but the point being be the change you want to see in the world. Be the porn you want to see in the world. Create the porn you want to see in the world. Do those four things. We transform the porn industry. I love that. I mean, as you mentioned before, Yvette, be the change you want to see in the world. So, Cindy, you mentioned actually previously you're working on some other ideas. And when I was doing some Googling, I noticed that you also invest in some sex tech. Um, no, 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 sorry. Oh. Uh, uh, wrong way around. So ah. uh, oh. I don't invest. I have no money. I put everything I have into make love, not porn. And, and that is why. I don't know why I found that on Google. Sorry. The Google is a lie. I know why you would have gotten that impression. That's because, so six years ago, I set out to raise just $2 million to scale, make love, not porn. And I knew it was going to be really challenging. My biggest obstacle raising funding is the social dynamic I call fear of what other people will think, uh, which operates around sex. Unlike we've been there. <laughs> yeah. So I knew that I was going to have to pave my own way. I would have to do what I tell other entrepreneurs to do, which is when you have a truly world-changing startup, you have to change the world to fit it, not the other way around. And so that was the point at which I like to say I got into the Steve Jobs business of reality distortion, because if reality tells me I can't grow make up the porn the way I want to, I'm going to change reality. And what I mean by that was I deliberately, six years ago, began defining, pioneering, championing my own category, sex tech. So I literally wrote the definition of sex tech. If you Google sex tech, I'm result one on page one. And sex tech is any form of technology or tech venture designed to innovate, disrupt, and enhance in any area of human sexual and human sexual experience. I coined the hashtag sex tech, didn't invent the term, but I'm directly responsible for propagating the hashtag as widely as it's used today. And I began speaking at tech conferences all around the world on why the next big thing in tech is disrupting sex. Because I thought at base level, if I just say this loudly enough, often enough, in enough places, people will start to believe it. I was doing all of this purely to create a climate of legitimacy around my startup to make investors receptive. But then two further accidents happened. Again, everything is an accident. The first was that as I defined this category, I began seeing for myself the enormous potential within it, not least financially. And the second thing was that I gained a reputation as a global champion of sex tech. Sex tech founders began writing to me from all around the world. And they wrote because they have all the same problems I do. Can't get funded, can't put payments in place, pour their hearts out. And I realized that I have unique access to extraordinary sex tech deal flow. 
And so that was the point at which I went, okay, in order to get my own startup funded, I'm just going to have to get the entire category funded. And so in a seemingly counterintuitive move, because I could not raise $2 million to scale Make Love Not Porn, I decided to raise $200 million to start the world's first and only sex tech fund. Because if nobody else will, then I will. Oh, and oh, well, yeah, no one else is doing it. Might as well yeah. just be the only one and just go all out. So then I began doing, again, what I tell other entrepreneurs to do, I began making it real. I gave my fund a name, bought the URL, registered the company. The name of my sex tech fund derives from a quote by Chairman Mao, who famously said many years ago, in the interests of gender equality, women hold up half the sky. I think that's relatively unambitious. My sex tech fund is called All the Sky Holdings. But the derivation is deliberate because if I can ever raise this money, I want to fund radically innovative sex tech ventures founded by women. The most interesting things in sex tech coming from female founders, we are finally owning our sexuality, finding unique ways to leverage it in business terms, because we get the enormous market that is women's needs, wants, and desires, historically deemed too embarrassing, shameful, taboo to address in business. And by the way, tap that huge primary market, you tap a huge secondary market of extremely happy men. Yeah, actually, uh, what was the conference uh, that happens every year? I'm blanking on it. It happens um, in Vegas. It's right pre oh, oh, CES. 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 Yep. Yeah. I mean, when it comes to sex tech, it's very frustrating because you have a number of emerging sex tech companies and, you know, they will try showing at CES. And what's a horrible double standard. And oh, yeah. yep. I would love to have one of these founders on my show because what frequently happens is that you will have that the women will, you know, show stuff that is, you know, pleasing towards women and stuff that's pleasing towards men. The pleasing towards men stuff, totally fine. The pleasing towards women stuff, censored. Too sexual. I've had a very public battle with CS the last three years because I keep applying to speak and keynote on sex tech and they keep refusing my application. So that was all covered this year um, in the wake of the Laura DiCarlo kerfuffle. But um, how do you know that they're uh, banning you on sex tech versus is that they have other speakers that they want to prioritize out of curiosity. And because they told me. <laughs> um, so, um, oh. And actually, I'll, I'll send you, I mean, for you're like, I have the receipts. I'll send you the links to the media coverage of this afterwards because I, I've, I've shared that their emails with the media. Um, so, wow, so, they're dicks. You know, Thanks. You know, um, so, um, no, I mean, I mean, both in my case, offering to keynote on say, and by the way, the point I made was I will present this really credible case for why sex tech should be at CES that you can then use to have, you know, female sex tech founders exhibit. Um, no, no, there's been a whole dialogue over the past three years about this. So you can totally find any one of us at womenofsextech.com and any of my fellow female sex tech founders would love to come on your show. But so. Cindy, if they ever feature you and teach boys about how to talk to girls about sex, how will their pasty virgins ever get laid? Oh, wait. It would work out for yep, them really, exactly, really well. Exactly. They just exactly. Head out of their asses. Head out of their asses. Hmm. I mean, then again, Cindy is teaching them one by one at the ripe age of 20 in their 20s, you know? So just look, someone has to do it. You're taking the hit for a lot of women. You know, I think the reason why people respond so well to Make Love Not Porn's aim of socializing sex is that I really empathize with how difficult it is to talk about sex when you're in bed with somebody because I will be in bed with somebody and I'll go, okay, we're going to have to have a conversation. And the moment we do, I know that the entire atmosphere is going to change. But then I go, I have to do this for every other woman he will ever sleep with. 
And so I absolutely have those conversations. And actually, they are enormously welcomed. Now, do you think they're welcomed because... So you mentioned previously that you do date younger men. So do do they see it as you, the older woman, the in a sense, the navigator of their sexuality, as if you're imparting wisdom on them? Or do they take it a different way? Because I, I feel like that is a trope, and I can't help but feel that society buys into it a little bit. Um, no, the interesting thing is, so... I'm a great believer in radical simplicity. I like to keep things very simple. The single biggest turn on in the world is to be in bed with somebody else and know they're having a bloody amazing time because of you. Yes. Okay. And that does not happen remotely often enough um, because um, we don't talk about sex. You know, people aren't educated, et cetera, et cetera, take their cues from porn. And so, you know, the moment you have demonstrated to somebody how much communication dramatically improves the quality of the sex you have. They are all about it. You know, I remember, um, you know, with one young gentleman, this is years ago, but, you know, we'd had sex, he'd come, I hadn't. So I then took his hand and showed him what to do with it and had a fantastic orgasm. And after said to me, oh, it's all about communication. And I went, yeah, you know, and then, and then, and then, um, and then more, more, more recently last year, I was with um, another young gentleman where I instructed him on how to make me come while he was inside me. And it was very obvious that, and, and by the way, this, this is a very attractive young man who has had a lot of girlfriends, except with a lot of women. And he was only 21 or so. It was very clear that he had never had any woman he'd slept with communicate with him about any form of instruction or what she liked or, you know, and it was a revelation for him. And, and he said, you know, I'm absolutely going to be doing a lot more of this going forwards. Oh, we all need to do that. So talk to your partners, talk to each other. Yeah, and, and, and use Make Love Not Porn as a prompt because, you know, the, the, th- the thing about us is that, you know, as one couple said to us, because we're social sex, they said, watching your videos made it so easy to have a conversation about our sex life because, you know, we talk about videos, you've normalized it. It's like talking about what you just watched on Netflix or on TV. You know, that's how natural and normal it makes the conversation, which can then segue into talking about your own sex life and, um, you know, all sorts of wonderful things ensue as a result. To diverge for a second, I'm curious. uh, So I had this written down in my notes uh, when I, of course, do my research on any guest. Something kept popping up with your name that I wanted a little bit more information on. A black apartment? So what is the story behind that? Because right now the walls behind you are very white. Um, yep, no, no, no. Um, I sold a black apartment five years ago. Um, so, so this oh. is my current home, the Sky Apartment. But both the black apartment and the Sky Apartment are a result of my New York real estate philosophy, which is always go looking for what nobody else wants. Because the only way to have a nice apartment in New York, uh, to afford a nice apartment in New York, is to buy a shithole and do it up. Yeah. I'm feeling you in an, in an attic in LA. Yeah. So. so in the case of the Black Apartment, what happened was that I moved here 22 years ago and I rented apartments in Chelsea and I, I love the neighborhood. And so in 2003, I thought, time to stop pouring rent down a black hole and buy somewhere. And I really wanted to stay in Chelsea. And and by the way, this is pre-Chelsea gentrification days, but nevertheless, I still couldn't afford a single thing that was ready to move into. 
So I ended up buying 3,800 square feet of raw space in what used to be the old YMCA building on West 23rd Street across from the Chelsea Hotel. Wait a minute, wait a minute. 3,800 square feet feet of space in New York City. Because... When was this? uh, This was 2003. So this was 17 years ago. And this was because um, the, the YMCA had sold the building to a developer moved out. The developer had demolished everything and was selling it off as raw space. So I basically went and clambered over all these piles of rubble and went, oh my God, I can't do this. And then I thought, how the hell else would I ever afford 3,800 square feet of space in the heart of New York. <laughs> oh so um, if I'd had the faintest idea what I was getting myself into, I wouldn't have done it. And so it's really good I didn't know. So I love the end Been result. There. But um, so, um, so two and a half years of, of absolute hell on wheels ensued. But um, the one good, th- and the fun thing about my apartment, by the way, was that I bought the front half of the sixth floor of the Y, which was where they used to have their indoor swimming pool in the back half. So my apartment was the men's locker and shower rooms at the YMCA. I literally lived where village people wrote the song about. Yay, Chelsea <laughs> Cultural Epicenter. <laughs> And nice. so, um, so fortunately, also buying into the Y was a young couple, Stefan and Gina, who had um, a design architecture agency called The Apartment. And they were building an apartment in their space. And so I was still running an ad agency. And so I commissioned them to design and build my space. And there were economies of scale. We all ordered the same kitchens and bathrooms and got discounts and all that kind of thing. But um, where the black comes from is, so... The wonderful thing about building an apartment from the ground up is you can make everything work exactly the way you want it to. And so I said to Stefan and Gina, here's my overall brief for this apartment, because years ago, I had been in one of my favorite cities in the world, Shanghai, at one of my favorite bars in the world, which which sadly no longer exists, but there was this place in Shanghai called the Glamour Bar. And I was sitting in the Glamour Bar, drinking my favorite cocktail in the world, a martini, and the glamour bar was beautifully lit and beautifully designed. And I remember sitting there on my second martini, three sheets to the wind, looking around me in a drunken haze, going, I wish I lived somewhere like this. And so I said to the design team, okay, here's your brief for this apartment. When night falls, I want to feel like I'm in a bar in Shanghai. And they went, we can do that. So mm. they went off and they researched bars and lounges in Shanghai. And that was when they came back to me and they went, okay, here's our vision. Wall, ceiling, floors, all black. And, I went, <gasps> and they said, no, 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 no. It, 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 I mean, your apartment, your space is large enough and light enough to take it. We will paint it, everything gloss black, so the light reflects off it so it's not oppressive. And it will make all your art and belongings really pop. And it totally did because people come and visit me who had no idea I lived in an all-black apartment until I told them because everything looked so colorful. So if you Google the black apartment, you will see my old apartment because it was covered a lot in interior magazines and online and stuff like that. And so I, I pursued the same philosophy when, because I bought and built the black apartment in my past life as a high-flying, highly-paid ad exec. Now I am bootstrapping entrepreneur battling to build Make Love Not Porn, didn't need the mortgage, you know. So I basically sold the black apartment um, five years ago. And then I had to find my next apartment. So once again, I pursued my philosophy of always go looking for what nobody else wants. And so I raked street easy. And I found a listing that spoke to me for two reasons that would have had everybody else running 50 miles in the opposite direction. Reason number one, Zero photographs of the apartment on the listing. I went, great oh boy. shithole. 
Okay. <laughs> clearly, clearly, Stop so, it. clearly nice. so bad. They couldn't even like <laughs> cheat a tiny corner photographically. Born out by point number two, the copy said, bring your vision and your architect. I oh. went total shit oh. What part of uh, New York is it in? It's in Midtown. Oh, okay. Yeah. So, um, and if you'd been on the market for eight months, no one had bought it. So, so clearly there were things wrong with it. So I called my oh, broker God. and I went, I want to go and see this one. So my broker calls the other broker, makes an appointment, comes back, says, okay, Cindy, we're going to go on this day at this time. Then he said to me, oh, and by the way, just so you know, the other broker said to me, I hope your client has a lot of imagination. <laughs> so, so he goes, she's got nothing but imagination. I'm going loving these vibes. You know, this listing is talking my language already. I haven't even seen it. So on the appointed day, we turn up at this very nondescript building on Fifth Avenue in Midtown, 39th. Very tall. Can't really tell what we're going to see. Meet another broker in the lobby. And she says to us, before we go up, let me just prepare you. So I'm thinking, yes. So, uh, so she said, this building was built 30 years ago. The developer who built the building built on the roof, side by side, two penthouses. They're triplexes, penthouse A, penthouse B. She said, we're going to go and see penthouse A. And penthouse A is lived in by a hoarder. And internally I went, we have something in common. Jackpot, <laughs> hallelujah. You know, because obviously oh, my mom was going, bargain, 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 bargain. So she's, she says, let me tell you, it was way worse when we first saw it. At least he's now cleared parts of the stuff you can vaguely see inside the rooms. I'm just thinking mm. all my Christmas has come at once. So oh. the broker is obviously very startled. The fact I'm completely unfazed at hearing this. As we come up in the elevator, she says to me, people with vision come here. They lose their vision instantly. So you have some idea of how bad it was by the fact she was underselling every step away to the front door. So She's trying uh, so, to scare you um, off. I walk into this apartment and it is jam-packed full of stuff. It's piled high, you know, can't see a thing behind it. And also, the apartment has not been touched in 30 years. There are holes in the walls. The windows are covered in shit. Everything's broken down. But behind yeah. it, I see, you know, three floors, three terraces, outstanding views, and a huge amount of outdoor space. And I went, this is my apartment. And because everybody else ran screaming, it was a total bargain for Manhattan, but it required a full-on gut renovation of everything. And that has been the last two and a half years of complete nightmare all over again. But so I ask you, because I'm in, in a similar uh, situation of a place that was formerly occupied by a hoarder, as you can see by the cords that are still my electricity. Did you ever have to remove jars of urine and extricate a family of possums? Well, fortunately not, but to give you some idea of how bad it was, I knew I was going to have to gut renovate, but, you know, I needed to kind of like get the plans for up. And so, so I went, okay, I'm going to camp out in the before picture, you know, while, while we get the plans sorted out. That ended up being a lot longer than I thought. You know, I ended up sleeping on a mattress on the floor for a year. But anyway, so, so, so I put most of my stuff in storage, moved some basic furniture and kitchen stuff, whatever in. I used this wonderful company, female founded, Ali Searles is the founder. And in fact, she changed her company's name at my recommendation. She runs the Moving Fairies. So you can find that movingfairies.com because that is what she and her all-female team do. They move you magically. They do everything. They think of everything. So, and I will never move without them again. They move me out of the black apartment. So they move me into the sky apartment um, for the camping out phase. And Ali and her team cleaned the apartment from top to bottom three times. Then she came to me and she said, Cindy, 
you know, we've cleaned this apartment top one three times. She said, um, I can't believe I'm even going to say these words to you, but I just have to. We've done the best we can with the urine stain beside the bed. <laughs> Because oh, I mean, it's eaten away at the floorboards. <laughs> okay, okay. It's, so the guy who lived here, he was one of a few. It's it's a commune here. Mm. There were four owners of the house. He was one of the owners. He was the only owner who lived here. There are two lofts in the attic. We're now the tenants of the attic. And it's like, hey, whatever you want to do with the attic to f- undo mm. this monstrosity. Anyways, he had his bed on one of the lofts. The bed itself soaked through with urine and I sat there with a thing of pine salt and bleach and just scrubbed for hours in a hazmat suit because I'm like nah nah not doing it but my god we found this it was likewise 30 years of stuff piled up here so when you said that I'm like oh I feel you girl but the fabulous thing is that's what makes it affordable I will never say out loud how little I pay in rent to live right in downtown LA because exactly. people will hate me. Exactly. <laughs> it's, yeah. yeah. I also am a resident of Midtown Manhattan and oh. I kind of hate you because I know how large a space you have is and how affordable it must have been that you snagged it. Holy shit. But the amount of work, it is definitely a challenge for anyone. I will put it that way, uh, because with a hoarder, let me put it this way, you'll find something old, something new, and something broken of everything. <laughs> we had a rule of four. It was something old, something new, something broken, and something upgraded. I missed like, it. Okay, they missed the it's, last one. It's, most of the time, it was just three, but like we had it uh, open for four. We At one point, I found an old uh, Adobe Photoshop um, manual, and I asked my husband, I'm like, what version of this? He's like, I think it's the first one. Good God. Like, <laughs> it's, do you remember those old, and I love the story because it's just a good representative of how this man never threw anything out. Remember, like, in uh, the late 80s, early 90s, you had those, like, plastic but wooden-looking containers that you would put VHS tapes into. Oh, yeah, 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 like, yeah, yeah, and yeah, 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 That were just so garish-looking yeah. after, like, a few years. You're like, we thought this looked good. What were we thinking? We were on drugs. Uh, he had piled as high as me twice over two empty things of those. Empties. Good God. Empties. Like I said, jars of urine. You found ashes. You found you found a dead person. We found a quote dead body. We found his father's ashes. Oh my uh, god! I was told I I never saw. There were boxes of porn. I was told at one point porn was found that was of a mm, bore, questionable nature in terms of legality. I'm oh glad I god. didn't see oh it. Oh my god! Ugh. Oh yeah, we look like I I'm. So when I say I feel you, girl, whatever you saw in there. I, I saw it too, and it was not good. <laughs> we're still like right now. We're finally like, and we're we're in the painting, and like we we needed to take a break after getting rid of all the garbage. Like my husband built a room in it, and it was just like, okay, we have the room where we can go and hide from this nightmare. <laughs> but like finally, like we're re- redoing all the electrical. It's just, but you know, fifteen hundred square feet in downtown LA yep. for a price that we would never get otherwise. So and bloody fantastic. I'm with it. you. Yep. It's I I feel you even more deeply now. <laughs> so if you live in the Midwest and you have never had to hunt for cheap housing, you don't know the struggle. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. You're like, what do you mean? I get housing for $400 a month. What struggle are you talking about? You jerks. So I own also a place outside of Manhattan and I decided, oh yeah, let me buy a place that was only built in the 1940s. Yeah, that's not going to have electrical issues at all or things that definitely don't comply to the town code. <laughs> 
Oops. It's like now the town code has things like, oh, your house needs to be built like 20 feet away from the street. My bu- my house oh my is God. built on the street. Oh, my God. You know, you should tell the town, hey, move the street. You know what? I have brought it up in town hall. Uh, they don't seem to listen. Pull a Roadrunner thing uh, or a, a Wiley Coyote thing and just paint the lines in the middle of the night. That won't get you arrested at all. Not at all. <laughs> so they're actually... Um, if anyone can find this, it's actually pretty hysterical. So I rent this place out that I ended up buying as a weekend house mm. because, yeah, that's totally normal for a New Yorker to have a weekend house. And I know if you don't live in New York, you will never understand this. <laughs> we need fresh air. More than masks, you need to get out of New York City if you want oxygen. Correct. Uh, so two years ago, my uh, partner and I, we we found a space. We got it. It's fantastic. Believe it or not, pandemic has been the best thing that's ever happened to us because people need a place to go. And we mm. pay our housekeepers generously mm. to disinfect the place uh, between guests. But my point is this. The town actually is one of the few towns in the area that actually has not made up their mind on Airbnb and has kind of really hated it uh, to the extent where they were like, hey, are we going to tax these people to an extent of like $2,000 per room? So for example, if you rent at a house, if you have two rooms, that's $4,000 you're going to pay to the town. Oh my God. Uh, Yeah. Especially if you rent one room out of an Airbnb annually, that for like 50 bucks a night that just wipes out the entire profit for the year so they're just like here's the thing there are people and i like i live in la and a lot of people know about this like airbnb has been used shall we say they've abused the system to the point where Mm. there are entire buildings that like and i mean i had to like i'm not laughing at people like you who have one place that you rent out that you also use uh that is like your air you know you help pay the mortgage via using it on airbnb but like there are people who have entire buildings that has just just you know destroyed the prices of rent and they're like i don't have any people paying my rent right now because I destroyed the housing mm. market. No, I'm fuck like, those I, people. I'm like, I don't mm. have any sympathy for you right now. Like, but like, I can see why cities are like, how do we get rid of Airbnb? And it's more like, okay, how can we get people to not use this system? That was a good idea. How can we get people to use it responsibly and not be dicks about it? So Ugh. that said, there is actually a town hall meeting. I, I kid you not, where I am in front of the town hall explaining with like a chart the numbers oh of how much the average Airbnb <laughs> person makes in a year. You're going rep Katie Porter on it. You're like, I brought charts. I'm explaining everything to you guys. They're numbers. I'm not joking. And I was telling them, I was like, hey, the rate you're going, the average Airbnb owner is going to be $2,000 in deficit. And here's a kicker. They basically were anti people doing Airbnb with their property, you know, full time, meaning just renting out Mm. their house on a full time basis. They just wanted, you know, here and there, you know, just having a room Mm. open. And I was explaining, no, you're going to wipe that entire thing out. And even at the end of it, there were still arguments of, yeah, but maybe they should do it full-time. And I'm like, but you just argued against it. So please fucking make up your mind. Like I said, using Airbnb responsibly brings tourism into the town. There's nothing wrong with it. But like, there has to be a way to regulate it so that people aren't being freaking douchebags about it and so that you can continue to do what you're doing with your one Mm. extra residence. We'll solve all the social ills on this one show, I'm sure. 
just to wrap this up, don't buy a property uh, that was built in the 1940s unless you're ready to tackle heavy wiring, electricity, and uh, a lot of things breaking down. And move the house 20 feet back from the road. Possibly. Move the road. We can do it. We have the tech these days, right? Maybe. I don't know. You know what? Someone build it. Move the road. That's a billion dollar idea. Uh, You know, Cindy didn't say it. We said it. Elon Musk will find a... No, he won't. (laughs) No, not at all. Please don't get Space Karen on us. (laughs) I will forever call him Space Karen now. I'm not wrong. I have no patience left for him. I miss when I liked Elon Musk. He's off the reservation now. Sorry. Cindy, what's your feelings about Elon Musk? Um, I don't have any really particularly. I mean, apathy. Great. Yeah, yeah. Apathy yeah. works. Too. I'm. I'm not angry with him. I'm just like, uh, mm. we're all apathetic about space Karen now. Cindy, where can I have our listeners find you? I'm on Twitter at Cindy Gallup and at Make Love Not Porn. I'm on Instagram at Cindy Gallup at Make Love Not Porn. You can follow me on Facebook, Cindy Gallup. I'm on LinkedIn, and I would encourage all your listeners if they've enjoyed this, to please go to makelovenotporn.com, sign up, take out a subscription, do support us, and consider becoming a Make Love Not Porn star. And not only can you help Cindy and makelovenotporn.com, but you can also help us out at the show that you love and listen to. So please, we have some patrons to thank. So this week, we want to thank Brett Lyles, Phil Thompson, Stranger in a Strange Land, Kelly Frazier, Mike Sorbetsko, Hawkskull, Thomas Leinbach, XGD Falcon, Paul Freeland, Brian Gowdy, Joshua Rice, Rich Wedling, Peter, Michael Gat, and many, many others. But if you want to become a patron, head on over to patreon.com slash two girls on mic or just two girls on mic.com. We always appreciate the support. And of course, you know, Melissa Alano ne- needs the help she can. <laughs> it's it's going to be our next podcast, the Melissa Alano podcast. It'll be our next project. We'll tell people how to dismantle the patriarchy or something. I don't know. How would Alyssa Milano feel if the Melissa Alano show surpassed her in viewership? She'll start tweeting angrily about it. Oh, God. It's, we I should could, do it. Next. Melissa Alano is our next podcast. So what we're saying is if we get a thousand Patreons, we will start the Melissa Alano show. Guys, get on it. It's just just go for the dollar donation level. Just do it just for a month. Just come on in. Make us do this weird thing like this podcast is a weird thing, too. We can do another weird podcast. Look, no one wanted this. No one we asked said- for this. We said we were going to review porn for the plot. And for some reason, you guys said, yeah, you should do it. And we're here. So let's let's do the Melissa Alana podcast next. <laughs> What's wrong with us? everything. That's why we do this show. Yeah. Yvette, where can our listeners find you? You guys can find me at the Cybabe on Twitter and Instagram and also over at facebook.com slash Cybabe where once a week or at Friday, I do my, my weekly live streams. It's trying to explain COVID and the world and whatever you guys ask. And occasionally I lick the screen because you guys are weirdos. Anyways, Alice, where can, where can people find you and all the things about our podcast? So if you pay extra, I do not lick the screen. Although if you pay enough, (laughs) maybe on Patreon. Uh, But you could find me at Rational Blonde on Twitter, or you could find the show at TGOM Podcast, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, all the places, Pornhub even, right? Yeah. Uh, There's definitely no porn. It's just a show. But well, actually, so fun fact. Oh, I didn't tell you this event. I'm going to be on Pornhub. Wait, you're going to be on Pornhub? So my business is going to be on Pornhub. Oh, yeah. Offensive crayons are going to Pornhub? 
offensive comments are coming to Pornhub. Oh, yeah. So, Cindy, uh, Pornhub decided to do this campaign for small businesses, help promote small businesses that have been affected by COVID. I decided about a month ago, hey, you know what? I'm a small business. I have mm, less. Absolutely. Right? I have less than 100 employees. Let me apply. And uh, they basically offer regional, uh, local, uh, targeted, or national campaigns. Mm, yeah, uh, yeah, I saw that, yeah. So I applied yep. and I got in. Excellent. So what I'm saying, thank you. Good. Your dirty girl crayons are on Pornhub. What I'm saying is, listeners, I want you to think of me as you're about to jacket uh, or my crayons. Uh, you know that they already are, at least some of them. Oh, yeah. At least 2%. Um <laughs> That's what the marketing has showed me. We had that one guy we had to call the FBI on who was definitely thinking of you. That is Patreon content, damn it. <laughs> and that's why you guys should all sign up for our Patreon. That said, we will see you guys next week. So make sure to hit the subscribe, like button, leave us a review, a comment, share us with all your porn-watching friends, which means freaking everyone. And we will see you then. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.